Welcome to the show. Um, the world is falling apart. So uh, I will be talking about the coronavirus. I'm going to lead with that because it is by far and away the most important story in the world right now. Um, man, we are super unprepared for a pandemic. Super unprepared for a pandemic. And there's a massive shortage of the, uh, the testing kits. There's some countries that have, like, drive-through testing, and then there's us. We have a shortage of the testing. So um, I'll talk about all the updates with that. There's been some pretty strong um, and scary developments. The World Health Organization um, is calling it a pandemic. So, anyway, we'll talk about that. I do have plenty of stuff on the presidential race as well. Um, Do yourself a favor and just try to not go out as much as possible. I was reading an article yesterday about how what they're calling social distancing is the best possible thing you could do. Namely, just stay away from large groups of people, constantly wash your hands, um, you know, stay alone as much as possible. So, you know, get used to Netflix, get used to video games. Apparently, the uh, the stocks for them have shot through the roof. Um, and I should have invested in hand sanitizer last month because I'd be a super rich man. <laughs> so, anyway, um, as I said, a lot of stuff to get to. Let's kick it off. Now, last night, I was planning on not doing this story first, but as the as everything developed, it became obvious to me that I really have no choice but to do this story first. So, 
Um, anyway, here we go. So the coronavirus, or COVID-19, has become very serious. I'm sure it's, you know, it's been very serious for a while, but um, there's finally a universal <laughs> acknowledging of it being very serious. The World Health Organization has officially declared it a pandemic. Um, and it brings me no pleasure to tell you that in the United States, our disaster response, our pandemic response, is abysmal. So there are some countries that are handling it properly and doing a good job, and then there's other countries that aren't. We're, we're on the list that uh, isn't doing it well. So first of all, one of the things that rocked Twitter last night, uh, apparently Tom Hanks and his wife now have coronavirus. They're in Australia. They basically got the test right away. Um, you know, they have it. Then the one that I was like, whoa, when I saw it, there's an NBA player on the Jazz by the name of Rudy Gobert. He has it, but not only does he have it, he's been like willy-nilly with touching things and being around people. And uh, apparently as a result of Rudy Gobert having it, he's already spread it to another player, Donovan Mitchell. There's one other player on the Jazz who has it. Any team that the Jazz have played in the past three or four days, um, you got to keep your eye on them. They absolutely have to be quarantined. Um, I think they played the Raptors recently. I know that they actually recently played the Knicks. And uh, Corin has told me he used to work at Madison Square Garden for the Knicks. And Corin told me that he still has friends who work there. They're already quarantining those people and saying, hey, look, you got to spend 14 days away. The NBA suspended the season. I've never, I've never heard of anything like that before. I mean, maybe the last time there was, you know, game suspended apart from Kobe Bryant's death, which just happened before that was like 9-11. And it was only obviously for, I don't know, maybe a couple days or a week. Um, this is, they're indefinitely suspending it. And so, you know, we have to see how long the pandemic lasts before we revisit and, you know, change course. The other thing that's absolutely wild Donald Trump was with Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro at um, Mar-a-Lago in Florida recently. Come to find out, one of uh, Bolsonaro's cabinet members, I believe his communications director or something like that, he was exhibiting symptoms of the virus. That dude got the test. Apparently, news just broke right before I came on air. He's got coronavirus. His wife has coronavirus. So that means the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, might have it. But beyond that, dude, there's pictures of, you know, all these characters with Trump at Mar-a-Lago in close proximity to him. So there's a decent chance that the president of the United States might have this. So, you know, I highly recommend because some of you are probably listening to this going, okay, but what exactly does that mean? I don't have a conception of what that means. I don't blame you if, if, you know, that's how you feel, because that's how I felt yesterday. But what I did is I watched the podcast. There's this guy by the name of Michael Osterholm. He's a public health scientist, a biosecurity and infectious disease expert. 
He's the director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He was in the Minnesota Health Department from 1975 to 1999, and he's on the National Science Advisory Board. I give you all that information about how solid his record is, because now I'm going to tell you he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. So I know, you know, when you say Joe Rogan, some of you guys will be like, really, bro, you're going to get science advice from Joe Rogan? No, I'm getting science advice from a public health scientist, biosecurity and infectious disease expert, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, Minnesota Health Department, um, dude from 75 to 99, and National Science Advisory Board member. So the dude is, he's as big of an expert as you could possibly get on this issue, and I highly recommend you go watch that podcast, or at least there's like a 15-minute clip out there that sums up exactly what the coronavirus COVID-19 is, exactly how deadly it is. Um, To sum it up in layman's terms, the coronavirus is anywhere from 10 times to 30 times worse than the flu. So in terms of death rate, we're talking about anything from 3% to 6%. Obviously, people who are older are more at risk. People with compromised immune systems are more at risk. Um, But, you know, it's bad. It's bad. It is a genuine pandemic, as the World Health Organization has already declared it. So that's why you're seeing unprecedented measures now. The stock market plunged. multiple times, and we'll get into more of that in a second, but Trump gave an emergency address from the Oval Office last night. I want to show you um, the meat of it. This is, I don't know, maybe a five or six minute clip here, but I think it's important for everybody to hear what he has to say, and then I'll come back and give you more information. To keep new cases from entering our shores, we will be suspending all travel from Europe to the United States for the next 30 days. The new rules will go into effect Friday at midnight. These restrictions will be adjusted subject to conditions on the ground. There will be exemptions for Americans who have undergone appropriate screenings, and these prohibitions will not only apply to the tremendous amount of trade and cargo, but various other things as we get approval. Anything coming from Europe to the United States is what we are discussing. These restrictions will also not apply to the United Kingdom. At the same time, we are monitoring the situation in China and the South Korea. And as their situation improves, we will reevaluate the restrictions and warnings that are currently in place for a possible early opening. Earlier this week, I met with the leaders of health insurance industry who have agreed to waive all co-payments for coronavirus treatments, extend insurance coverage to these treatments, and to prevent surprise medical billing. We are cutting massive amounts of red tape to make antiviral therapies available in record time. These treatments will significantly reduce the impact and reach of the virus. Additionally, last week I signed into law an $8.3 billion funding bill to help CDC and other government agencies fight the virus and support vaccines, treatments, and distribution of medical supplies. Testing and testing capabilities are expanding rapidly day by day. We are moving very quickly. The vast majority of Americans, the risk is very, very low. 
young and healthy people can expect to recover fully and quickly if they should get the virus. The highest risk is for elderly population with underlying health conditions. The elderly population must be very, very careful. In particular, we are strongly advising that nursing homes for the elderly suspend all medically unnecessary visits. In general, older Americans should also avoid non-essential travel in crowded areas. My administration is coordinating directly with communities with the largest outbreaks, and we have issued guidance on school closures, social distancing, and reducing large gatherings. Smart action today will prevent the spread of the virus tomorrow. Every community faces different risks, and it is critical for you to follow the guidelines of your local officials who are working closely with our federal health experts, and they are the best. For all Americans, it is essential that everyone take extra precautions and practice good hygiene. Each of us has a role to play in defeating this virus. Wash your hands, clean often used surfaces, cover your face and mouth if you sneeze or cough, and most of all, if you are sick or not feeling well, stay home. To ensure that working Americans impacted by the virus can stay home without fear of financial hardship, I will soon be taking emergency action, which is unprecedented, to provide financial relief. This will be targeted for workers who are ill, quarantined, or caring for others due to coronavirus. I will be asking Congress to take legislative action to extend this relief. Because of the economic policies that we have put into place over the last three years, we have the greatest economy anywhere in the world by far. Our banks and financial institutions are fully capitalized and incredibly strong. Our unemployment is at a historic low. This vast economic prosperity gives us flexibility, reserves, and resources to handle any threat that comes our way. This is not a financial crisis. This is just a temporary moment of time that we will overcome together as a nation and as a world. However, to provide extra support for American workers, families, and businesses, tonight I am announcing the following additional actions. I am instructing the Small Business Administration to exercise available authority to provide capital and liquidity to firms affected by the coronavirus. Effective immediately, the SBA will begin providing economic loans in affected states and territories. These low interest loans will help small businesses overcome temporary economic disruptions caused by the virus. To this end, I am asking Congress to increase funding for this program by an additional $50 billion. Using emergency authority, I will be instructing the Treasury Department to defer tax payments without interest or penalties for certain individuals and businesses negatively impacted. This action will provide more than $200 billion of additional liquidity to the economy. Finally, I am calling on Congress to provide Americans with immediate payroll tax relief. Hopefully, they will consider this very strongly. We are at a critical time in the fight against the virus. We made a life-saving move with early action on China. Now we must take the same action with Europe. We will not delay. 
I will never hesitate to take any necessary steps to protect the lives, health, and safety of the American people. I will always put the well-being of America first. If we are vigilant and we can reduce the chance of infection, which we will, we will significantly impede the transmission of the virus. The, the virus will not have a chance against us. No nation is more prepared or more resilient than the United States. So that is uh, definitely not true. <laughs> there are many nations that are way more prepared than the United States. So um, the best response has been in Taiwan and also uh, in Singapore. They've had a really, really good response, and um, it's mostly because they've had, you know, experience with previous outbreaks. Whether I don't know whether it was SARS or MERS or one of these other outbreaks, um, but as a direct result of that, they were prepared. So there's a lot of, um, you know, stockpiling of the necessary treatments and, and, and the masks that are needed, the protective gear, um, the tests. So there's um, many countries that are, are handling this really well, and I forget where it was. It may have been Australia, but it, maybe South Korea. I don't remember, so don't quote me on it. But there's there are, is at least one country, maybe multiple countries, where they almost have, like, drive-through testing, <laughs> which is like, what? Now, here in the United States, um, we have a massive, massive shortage of the tests. We have a shortage. So our response is more like Iran, and they're getting hammered right now with this, um, and it's also more like Italy. Northern Italy is getting obliterated by this. And there's a, I read a very, very concerning article about some of the really scary life and death decisions that are being made in northern Italy because there's a, the hospitals are overrun, people are in hallways, um, you know, the older folks who get this are struggle breathing, they need to be on a ventilator, and they're having to make these very, very heartbreaking decisions as to we only have a limited number of ventilators, who gets it and who doesn't. It's almost like some people are being sentenced to die. And they're choosing, okay, I guess we got to go with the ones who are younger and healthier and more likely to survive. So some people are basically being left for dead. Now, if you're not scared yet, listen, man, a lot of the, stu a lot of the things that we need to deal with this pandemic, a lot of the stuff, we have supply lines from China. And we don't, we're totally unprepared on our own to deal with this. A lot of the medicine that we need, the masks that we need, you know, that um, infectious disease expert told a story about how apparently 90% of the world's IV bags are made in Puerto Rico. This isn't, obviously this isn't directly related to, to this pandemic, but his point was 90% of the IV bags were made in Puerto Rico, and then when they got obliterated by a hurricane, um, the whole world had a crisis as a result of that. So this is the same thing we're experiencing with, you know, the masks that we need, the protective gear that we need for this, some of the, the treatments, uh, the tests that we need for this, we're, we're totally unprepared. And by the way, just, you know, a quick little side point, this is what 
people like me have been screaming about for a long time is that free trade is good in so far as it's a necessity. But unfortunately, in many instances, we've become too dependent on the supply lines to countries that are even, we're somewhat hostile to them and they're somewhat hostile to us. If they wanted to, they could just cut the supply line. They could just cut the supply line. And in fact, now the Chinese government is putting pressure on the U.S. government over their cell phone company, Huawei, and they're like, hey, man, you guys aren't allowing Huawei into U.S. markets. Interesting. Well, I guess we'll have to take a look and review whether or not you'll be getting the, the, these masks and this necessary protective gear. Here we go. See, this is, this is why, you know, I've been screaming, one of the reasons why I've been screaming at the top of my lungs, that we need to become a manufacturing hub in this country again. We need to be self-sufficient. Again, trade out of necessity where you need, but we shouldn't, all the supply lines for our necessary medicine shouldn't be traced back to China where they can just pull the plug whatever the hell they want. I mean, this is madness. So we have a shortage of tests. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the health professionals are undertrained and don't know how to deal with this. I read a just terrifying Twitter thread about a dude who had come into contact with somebody who was, came from the region where there was a hotbed of this, and then he was exhibiting symptoms. He waited two weeks, and then he went you know, into the hospital, and they, he went right to quarantine, and they were testing him with all the frickin', you know, gear on, the protective gear. And they gave him the test and, and said he's clear, but apparently um, he had only gotten the test for <clears throat> the coronavirus, not for COVID-19, which is, I guess, the specific strain of coronavirus. And uh, he's, keep, he's, in, he's in limbo. He keeps trying to call and ask, and they're like, oh, you got to call this lab. He calls that lab. That lab's like, oh, no, we don't have it. You got to call the, you know, the original nurse who was doing the test. So, oh, Jesus Christ. So he's calling all over the place, and they're like, yeah, they, missed, they didn't do the test right. So here's this dude. He might have coronavirus, and, you know, it, he could have spread it a thousand ways to Sunday. He goes in for testing. They can't even tell him if he has it. So this is how unprepared we are now. Uh, officially in the United States, we have – this is the official number. We have a thousand cases. Those are people who've been tested, confirmed they have it. Um, but the reality of the situation is, as any – infectious disease expert will tell you, the actual number of cases, the real cases that exist, are way more than a thousand. Way more than a thousand. So, and also it's possible you could spread it without exhibiting symptoms. The former head of the CDC said that when all is said and done, not to scare you too much here, former head of the CDC, half of the United States population could be infected and one million people could die. At least 150 million people infected, 1 million people can die. This is a pandemic. We're watching a pandemic. Now, the Spanish flu, to be fair, was a lot worse. But what we're talking about here, again, is 10 to 30 times worse than the, the flu. So it, it, this is not good. And that's why you're seeing, you know, a bunch of chaos happening and mayhem. And, uh, you know, my, the home, my hometown where I grew up, they quarantined it because there was one dude, a lawyer, who lives there, and he, I think, went to a synagogue, and it spread all over the place, and they were like, all right, well, we got to shut it down. So they shut down the shopping center that was, I worked when I was younger. I worked in one of these shopping centers. They shut, shut it down. They sent in the National Guard. This is serious, man. This is, this is really serious. Um now, let's go through some of what Trump said there. He said he's banning travel from Europe, but not the U.K. 
Okay, listen. The UK has more cases than almost anywhere else in Europe except Italy. Um, so that's totally arbitrary that he's saying, oh, well, not the UK. Why? My guess is because of our relationship with the UK government. They didn't want it banned. And, All right, fine. We won't ban it. Okay, but then it's more, guys, this is more of a PR thing than like, oh, this will keep us safe thing. Um, then he said, oh, we're going to waive co-payments for the coronavirus treatment. Well, the insurance companies came out immediately after the speech, and they said, we didn't say that. We said, we'll waive uh, payment for the test. But the treatment, you're on your own. Oh, Jesus Christ. So now we could have people with freaking coronavirus who are like, I mean, I, what am I going to do? I want to go get treatment, but I'm, right now my symptoms, I guess, are just like the common cold or like the regular flu. I'm not going to go to the hospital. What if I get hit with a bill for five grand or ten grand to try to treat me for this thing? I don't have that kind of money. What am I going to do? So Trump just went out there and made it up. He's like, yeah, they uh, said they'd waive, uh, to, you know, payments for the coronavirus treatment. Now, by the way, I, I wish that was true, and I hope that the president saying that would have maybe pressured them into doing it, but they came out immediately and were like, no, we said the testing, not the treatment. Oh, my God. See, if only there was a presidential candidate running who was in favor of universal health care, Medicare for all. But I digress. Um, now, also... He said small business administration loans they're going to give a payroll tax cut, which is so on Republican brand. Oh, we have a pandemic? Will some tax cuts help? Let's try tax cuts. Uh, there were separate stories about a bailout of certain industries. I'm sure that is going to pop up um, more in the coming days. Guys, the airline industry is getting hammered, son, hammered. United just announced we're cutting at least 20% of our flights for the foreseeable future because, you know, obviously business is – getting hit but listen ultimately i'd rather have business hit than have people die so yes the main thing that you could do to stay safe is what they call social distancing which is just a fancy way of saying don't go outside as much as possible don't be around people as much as possible i understand everybody's got to work and what are you going to do you, you got to do what you got to do but as much as humanly possible keep your distance keep your distance and they always say, of course, wash your hands like crazy. Just all unnecessary contact, all big gatherings. Do not do it. Do not go to any big gatherings. Um, and by the way, the bailout of industries that we're talking about here, this is literally like corporate socialism. This is exactly what Bernie Sanders talks about, that Donald Trump and various establishment Republicans and establishment Democrats, their whole thing is like, well, no, I'm totally fine with socialism as long as it's for my donors. And that's exactly what we're talking about with these bailouts in the wake of this emergency. And what we really need, the real answer to this is more aggressive action. And it, it honestly is universal uh, paid sick leave, you know, some form of of UBI right now, universal basic income, and Medicare for all. I mean, that's what we need. And obviously you need more disaster preparedness. You need, um, they had cut the CDC budget. They cut health and human services. They laid off the pandemic experts that we had in 2018. And now they're caught with their pants down. And they don't know what the hell to do. So um, obviously this is one of those instances where, yes, a Democratic administration, even uh, fill in the blank with whatever, Democratic administration you want, even ones that are centrist and annoying and corporate, 
I, I have no doubt Obama would have handled this a lot better than Trump is handling it because they at least believe in, okay, we'll have a functioning health and human services and have a functioning, you know, um, CDC and have pandemic experts because that's – what are we, idiots? They fundamentally don't believe in government, <laughs> guys like Trump. The only time they believe in it is to do the bailout for the industries because that's their buddies. So the market, just so everybody understands, absolutely plummeted, absolutely plummeted. As soon as Trump gave this Oval Office announcement, which was meant to kind of like quell fears and say, hey, we're on it, the futures dropped so sharply. Today, when the market opened, immediately everything plunges. They paused trading. They paused trading because it was so bad. That's the second time this week that the market had to stop because everything was falling off of a cliff. So it looks like, you know, that, that giant crash that we were talking about, it looks like it's here now. And how's this for a shocker? The catalyst was a global pandemic. I've been, you guys know I've been giving my spiel for how long now, for years, saying, listen, the bubble's reinflated. It's going to burst at some point. I don't know what's going to be that pin that pops it. I don't know if it's going to be the, ho- the housing bubble repopping. I don't know if it's going to be the derivatives market. I don't know if it's going to be student loan debt crisis or credit card debt, whatever it is. I know that bubble's going to pop. It's just a matter of when. And apparently, the thing that's popping it is a global pandemic. So it's just wild to see, man. So he did have, he does have some version of a paid uh, sick leave plan, but again, it's not a universal plan. It only cover, it covers those who are sick, caregivers for those who are sick, and those furloughed because of the coronavirus. So at least on that front, listen, that's not horrible. The fact that they're they're um, waiving the payment for the test. Good. They should go further and waive it for the treatment, too, obviously. Um, the paid sick leave plan, okay, but, I mean, I would be more aggressive with it. And also, again, I mean, what, what are we going to do? The economy is going to grind to a halt no matter what and because pe- people have to not get sick. The fact that the NBA suspended their entire season, I've never seen anything like that before in my entire life. So we're dealing with the, the hand we were dealt, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is for the future, we have to change those supply lines. We have to be more self-sufficient and also immediately call in the experts from Singapore, immediately call in the experts from Taiwan because they're handling this so well. And whatever they did is what we need to do, but we're wholly unprepared. And one of the main reasons is our system is, is totally broken. Our healthcare system is criminal. It's made for price gouging. It's made to, to give all the money to the mafia middlemen in big pharma and the for-profit health insurance companies. So, you know, the profit motive in our healthcare system is largely responsible for this, as well as having an administration that's corrupt and just doesn't believe in good government. So, you know, we need better disaster preparedness. We need to fully fund the CDC and HHS. We need to make sure we have these, uh, these tests widely available. We have to listen to the World Health Organization. We have to follow the lead of the governments who have experienced pandemics like this before and are prepared and ready and know how to deal with it. Because right now, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say our response is more like that of Italy and more like that of countries that were harder hit than it is of Taiwan and Singapore, who kind of nailed it. Even China, 
they acted aggressively, aggressively as soon as the outbreak happened in Wuhan. And um, so their response in many ways is better. Now, you could say, hey, they're an authoritarian system, so they're like almost by nature, it's easier for them to handle a situation like this. That's true. But I think even, even the most civil libertarian of civil libertarians, myself included, um, we all understand that in times of a pandemic, if there was ever a time to have like, you know, really important orders for health reasons followed, this is it. This is like the one instance where it's like, I get it, man. I get it. You know, a freedom of travel or whatever is temporarily restricted. We're going to have a process that everybody has to follow. I get it. I think all other civil libertarians get it. This is a unique situation, and it requires a unique response. So um, here we are. I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know just how disastrous the effects will be. But I'll finish again by, by recommending to you, I highly recommend you watch that, uh, that podcast with the infectious disease expert. Again, his name is Michael Osterholm. He's a public health scientist, biosecurity, and infectious disease expert. He's director for the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He was in the Minnesota Health Department from 75 to 99, and he's on the National Science Advisory Board. He was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Watch that and listen to experts like that. And by the way, there's a lot of misinformation out there, too. Don't trust sources that you can't, like, verify immediately. You know, if, if you find out that these somebody's legit, okay, great, then trust them. But your default assumption should be the person doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, random Facebook posts, whatever the hell, because there is a lot of misinformation out there. But um, anyway, everybody have fun on their own little isolated island as much as you possibly can and avoid big public gatherings. And a lot of them are being banned, and I expect to see more of that, you know, in the coming weeks and months. But um, hang in there. All right, next. Okay, here we go. So Jake Tapper on election night on Tuesday, suddenly realized what we've been saying all along and what many others have been saying, which is that um, Joe Biden is a weak candidate. So this was in the middle of Super Tuesday, too. Watch the light bulb go off. Completely frank, I'm getting real 2004 vibes tonight, which is Democrats want to defeat an incumbent Republican so badly, Democratic voters, I mean, that they decide which one is electable, and they decide which one is electable, and they decide, okay, it's John Kerry, or in this case, it's Joe Biden. There's a huge coalescing around that person. They want to end the primary process as soon as possible, uh, and then basically they coronate this person. Now, what did we learn uh, in the last few weeks? Uh, Mark McKinnon, former George W. Bush advisor, uh, told me that actually they feared Howard Dean more because Howard Dean, even though he was less predictable, there was a, a st starker difference between Howard Dean and George W. Bush, and uh, he was drawing much bigger crowds than John Kerry was able to. 
And Howard Dean, we had him on the, on the Sunday show, and Howard Dean said, now you tell me. Um, but, but the point is that when you have the Democratic electorate deciding that they are all a bunch of Rachel Maddows and Chris Hayes and the like, that they're just, you know, progressive pundits and they're going to pick out who is the best one, maybe they don't necessarily always know what they're doing. There you have it. And I'll go a step further. They definitely don't know what they're doing. Listen, Joe Biden is winning all these primaries specifically because of the turnout from people age 65 and up is through the roof. Young people have turned out in higher numbers than they did in 2016, just so you understand. So it's not like Bernie is, you know, it's not like he's struggling to an extreme degree that would indicate that there's weakness in the general. No. Uh, he, it, young turnout is up, but 65 and older, that turnout is so high, and it's just absolutely through the roof, and it's drowning out the increase in turnout among the young. And, yes, they're literally telling the exit pollsters, oh, oh, no, I'm, I'm voting for Biden specifically because of electability, because I think he's the only one who could beat Trump, and I've been told that all along. So, in other words, yes. The mainstream media propaganda from CNN, the network you just saw right there, and MSNBC, that's what is swaying this election. We're going to get to a quantitative study later on. It's been proven. The coverage of Bernie Sanders, even after his wins, is negative. The coverage of Biden is nonstop positive now. So people are convinced, oh, he's a, he's a big name. He was the VP. He's serious. He's a career politician. He's the safe bet. Well, this is exactly what happened with John Kerry, exactly to Jake Tapper's point. Finally, he's realizing the obvious. By the way, we don't have to go that far back for the analogy either. He's going to 2004. Try, I don't know, the last election, 2016. Hillary Clinton, career politician, well-known. She lost to Donald Trump. We just ran the experiment of a safe centrist up against Donald Trump. We know how that happens. We know what ends up happening, how that works. So, you know, they're finally realizing it, man. So the short-term goal for Bernie and all of us has to be to convince everybody, no, 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 he actually is more electable. He is more electable. But honestly, the long-term goal, which, you know, it annoys me to no end that we have to even talk about this and focus on this, but the long-term goal is to tell people, wait, 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 wait. No, you're allowed to vote. I give you permission to vote on who you think the best candidate is, who is in favor of the policies that would improve the most lives. You know, to people like us, we, that, to us, that's a duh. Like, hey, who should you vote for? I don't know, the person with the best policies? That's the most obvious thing in the world to us. That's not how the older folks in general think. That's not how that demographic group largely thinks. They're just thinking in rank, sheer, partisan terms right now, and I'm sure the nonstop Russiagate and Mueller stuff and impeachment stuff also led them down this path, where their worldview is so warped and deranged now that they don't think about policy almost at all. And by the way, for a lot of the older generation, they're more financially stable than the younger generation, which further explains why they have almost the luxury of just thinking about something like electability as opposed to, I don't know, making sure you can pay your medical bills. So... The long-term goal is we have to convince people, we have to tell people, guys, it's okay to vote for who you think the best candidate is. In fact, that's the only thing that makes sense. The, amount, the sheer tsunami of propaganda that it must have taken 
to get people to think that's not the criteria on which you vote is, is mind-numbing. It's stunning to think that there is that much propaganda that took, shifted people off that position because that's the default position. Any reasonable person is going to go, I'm going to vote for who I think has the best policies. Duh. Obviously, I'm trying to improve my life. I'm trying to improve the country. I'm trying to you know, fight back against climate change and get, uh, help fight back against poverty, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. But seriously, older voters are not thinking like that, generally speaking. If you're an older voter and you watch this show, you're definitely thinking like that, and we salute you. But if you're, you know, in general, the older demographic by the numbers is going, uh, electability, electability, electability. And by the way, again, even according to their own criteria, they've definitely miscalculated. Bernie is way more electable in a general election by far and away. Um, but uh, we honestly, and I need to start doing this as well on this show, I will from now on keep making the point, keep making the case that the only way to fix problems, the only way to be serious is to vote for whoever has the best policies, all else be damned. The fact that we need to wage this campaign to change hearts and minds on that is very depressing. But I will give you the good news is at least the younger generation already gets that. And the numbers for Bernie, as high as Biden's 65-plus numbers are, Bernie's percentage for the younger generation is higher. Is higher. I mean, you go 30 and under, and Bernie's got over 80%. Honestly, the demographic Bernie's doing well with is 44 and under. He's got like 70%. So that means Gen Xers are with the millennials. Gen Xers are more with the millennials than with the boomers in the silent generation. So even, you know, certain age group that's a little older than us are still, they they see the whole picture. So the older voters really are, they're killing us, man. And um, we have to try to change their mind and convince them. No, it's okay. Vote based on who has the best policies. Ah! I mean, the fact that, guys, the fact that the older generation is overwhelmingly favoring a guy who's going to cut their Social Security because Trump, that tells you everything you need to know about how rational this is. So um, thank you, Jake Tapper, for recognizing, for realizing the obvious. We really, really appreciate it. All right, next. CNN decided to do a 180 and suddenly care about young voters out of nowhere. This just happens to be on the night of Super Tuesday 2 when Joe Biden performed very well and now has a solid delegate lead. So this is what I call a pivot among CNN commentators. This is a very dangerous moment for the Democratic Party. Uh, You have now an insurgency that's about to be defeated. What do you do with the people that you defeat? There was a hope on the part of a lot of young people they had a champion. You got young people who are graduating with a quarter million dollars in debt. You got young people with a lot of pain, and they had a champion. And they thought that they were going to be able to surround the divided establishment with their movement, crush that divided establishment, and move forward. Instead, the establishment united and stopped them. Now what do you do? 
Last time Bernie Sanders got beaten, there was an assumption that all these people were just going to fall in line and vote against Trump, and there was not enough care for the concern and the pain of his base. I think tonight there's going to be a lot of crowing, a lot of relief on the part of the establishment, but keep it temperate and turn. Turn to those people and say, we want to be your champion. No. If you don't do that, you're going to have a period victory. Right. There, there, Corporate media, within this month, has compared us to the coronavirus. They've compared us to the brown shirts, Nazis. They've had nothing positive to say about young voters, and they've berated us time and time again with our concerns. Every single, every single debate, that's not an exaggeration, every single debate, there was a question about how are you going to pay for it when it comes to basic social democratic policies that the rest of the developed world has managed to figure out. Um, And, you know, go do a comparison. How many times was that question asked? How many times was the question about the scary word socialism asked versus, you know, um, homelessness, climate change questions? There were some debates where climate change didn't come up at all. So all of these very serious issues, poverty, all these very serious issues, and the media could not be more hostile to our concerns. And now, the night that Joe Biden gets a big delegate lead, they turn around, oh, oh, we care so much about the young Oh, we care so much. What can we do to help you? What are we going to help you? No, you just want our vote. You just want our vote. Well, guess what? Young people are not a democratic firewall. We're not. The idea that you could just depend on, rely on, yeah, whatever, shut up and show up and vote for me. I guarantee you, hear me now, quote me later, I guarantee you what Joe Biden does from now for the rest of the election, he'll, he'll wind up following the exact same path as Hillary Clinton, namely do Dickie McGee's acts. Who did Hillary Clinton pick for VP? Tim Kaine. You know what that was? A giant middle finger to the base. Oh, oh, you thought I was supposed to represent you. You thought I was supposed to help you out? No, 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 no. I am going for those phantom moderate Republicans in the suburbs. And so I will only, you know, pick somebody who will appease them even though they hate me. Joe Biden's going to do the same damn thing. Same damn thing. So, you know, my answer to, to Van Jones is very simple. If you want young people to vote, it's policy. It's policy, policy, policy. And uh, the problem is, in the case of Hillary and in the case with Joe Biden, is that you could not have picked a worse vessel because all the information is already out there about their record. And so we already know, based on what they've already done, that even if they try to say stuff that's gonna, that we're going to like, we're going to see through it, and we're going to go, oh, this is just an electoral ploy. You don't even believe in what you're saying. So the problem is you picked people with the worst possible records that do not speak to our concerns. These are basically moderate Republicans. So even if they do you know, an intelligent pivot to the left and not the right, because they're already too far right, Even if they do that, people will look at them and be like, I don't believe you. So you could not have picked a worse candidate to hang your hopes on. 
because the young are not going to turn out no matter what the hell you do in the case of Joe Biden. They're just not. I'm not saying he, he wouldn't get a higher percentage than Trump, but what I am saying is you're not going to get the numbers that you need because look at the concerns of young people, and he's MIA in all of them. So, and I will, let me throw this up for you so you can see. This is Joe Biden's, you know, record here. He supported the Iraq War, NAFTA, PNTR with China, Patriot Act, TPP, repeal of Glass-Steagall, war on drugs, Wall Street bailout, the Anti-Gay Defensive Marriage Act. He opposes legal marijuana, a wealth tax, Medicare for all, free college, and canceling student debt. And all that, by the way, was a tweet that was done just off the top of my head. You can't pick somebody who doesn't fight for or believe in any of our priorities and then expect them to turn out and vote for you. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. And it doesn't matter how much you shame us. It doesn't matter how much you yell at us and call us bad people. You're helping Trump. That's the big one. Oh, you helped Trump. What about the kids in cages? Joe Biden and Barack Obama put kids in cages. They did that. Three million deportations. This, and by the way, this is, I'm not, what I'm saying is not controversial. It's a matter of historical record. We know that they put them in cages because there, there was a photo that went viral one day. And it was a kid in a cage, and they're, oh, look at what Trump's doing. Come to find out the picture was taken during the Obama administration. So all the things that you think you could trot out is like Trump cards, aha, gotcha. You don't. You don't. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. So it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Listen, my dad would probably be alive if we had Medicare for all. The fact that Joe Biden was on TV the day before Super Tuesday 2 saying, I will veto Medicare for all, what do you think that does to me? Oh, great. So now there will continue to be 45,000 more of my dad's every single year. That situation. There's a m- bunch of people out there who are going to feel incredible pain and sorrow because they lost a loved one and it was preventable. And Joe Biden's like, I'm not going to do anything to fix that. Okay, so then how about you piss right off? How about you piss right off? I'm going to do nothing of what you want me to do. Now shut up and go vote for me. (laughs) Your voter outreach needs work. Okay. I am going to take a break. When I come back, oh, Andrew Yang, what have you done to us? What have you done to us, Andrew Yang? He lost his credibility. That's what he's done. I was a pretty pretty ardent defender of him most of the time. But that has ended, y'all. That has ended. So stay right there. We'll be right back.
we back. We are back. We are back. Okay. Um, Andrew Yang, you done broke my heart, and you done broke everybody's heart. Let me... Um, Let me do the damn thing. If I can find... Oh, fuck. I left on... Uh... Let me close the door. Ugh! I left on something that is being loud in the background. And so now I must address it. Just, I, just, uh, I just heard that the PGA Tour professional golfers, they are banning fans for the foreseeable future. I have to say, this pandemic is unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. So, there's that. And basically, Trump is the last person I would ever want to be in control during a pandemic. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Andrew Yang broke the hearts of a lot of his supporters on Tuesday. Here's why. Andrew Yang, I see you've been writing on your paper a lot. We haven't heard from you a little bit. Um, you haven't where, – where do you see the race right now? Where do you see this going for Joe Biden? Uh, I believe that Joe Biden will be the Democratic nominee, and I've always said I'm going to support whoever the nominee is, so I hereby am endorsing Joe Biden to be not just the nominee for the Democratic Party, but the next president of the United States. And I say this, uh, having supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, Bernie was an inspiration for me, inspired my run, uh, but the math says Joe is our prohibitive nominee. We need to bring the party together. Uh, we need to start working on defeating Donald Trump in the fall. I've had many personal conversations with Joe about the impact of the fourth industrial revolution on the middle class. I believe that he's the right man for the job to help us not just defeat Donald Trump, but govern the country in the years ahead. You could almost see in his face at the end that he's not exactly happy about this. You could almost see it in his face. How he's like, did I just say that? Yep, I just said that. Joe Biden doesn't support any of the innovative or interesting solutions to problems that Andrew Yang does. He just doesn't. He just doesn't. So throughout the election season, I, uh, I've given Andrew Yang quite a bit of credit. There are times I've been critical of him, um, but that's expected with any candidate. I've been critical of Bernie Sanders from time to time. Uh, when he takes a position that I'm not in favor of. So um, in all seriousness, this move really, really hurts his credibility. I understand that he's now, you know, working at CNN. And so by definition, he's part of the club. But you expect some degree of outsiderness to remain. And it's certainly possible there are contributors at CNN who are more outsiders and they hold on to that credibility, but this move right here, I think it's credibility ruining. I do. He tried to, you know, 
he tried to couch it by saying like, oh, I, I always said I'd, you know, support whoever the nominee is and he's the prohibitive nominee, so I support him. But, you know, this is that exact kind of like sheep thinking that I despise. The whole like, well, this person is now winning, so I'm going to hop on board. Who cares? I care about policy. I care about what they're actually going to do. And I thought you did too, Andrew. So uh, sometimes I agree, sometimes I disagree. But I thought even among our disagreements, it's a genuine disagreement. And it's just, hey, we have substantive differences. But this is embarrassing, man. It really is. So why is it absurd to do this? Because here's Joe Biden's record. He supported the Iraq War, NAFTA, PNTR with China, Patriot Act, TPP, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, War on Drugs, Wall Street bailout, the Anti-Gay Defensive Marriage Act, and he opposes legal marijuana, a wealth tax. I know Andrew's against the wealth tax, too, so if you're a Yang fan, just ignore that one. But Medicare for all, free college, canceling student debt. And again, these are all off the top of my head. What Andrew Yang just rolled out this new project he has recently, and his whole thing is, and I think this is a pretty cool idea. He says, okay, uh, you know, I'm going to support, I'll support you if you run for office and you come out in favor of UBI. Okay, sweet. So I'm happy that he's putting UBI front and center in the national conversation. I love that. That's one of the reasons I gave him so much credit is because it's a really important idea and I think we should have UBI. And for somebody to champion that and make it mainstream, that's awesome. But Andrew, Tulsi Gabbard endorsed UBI and Joe Biden didn't. So why would you support the candidate who didn't do the thing that is your main thing? If Bernie Sanders was against Medicare for all, you think I would be as big of a Bernie bro as I am? Answer, no. <laughs> I wouldn't. I just wouldn't because it's about the policy. So Joe Biden doesn't support his main policy that he cares about, and he's like, yeah, I like him. What? I, I Honestly, and I, I know, I know, Tulsi Gabbard's way out of the race. Got it. But again, if you're principled, that means, no, these are my, this is my criteria. You either meet it or you don't. My litmus test, as Andrew Yang, my litmus test is UBI. Tulsi endorsed UBI. Got it. Now I'm going to back you. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. I'm sorry. It is credibility destroying. Because not only did you not do the thing you said you were going to do, you didn't endorse Tulsi when she endorsed UBI. And that was a while ago. That was like the day after Andrew Yang dropped out. Um, but also, I mean, it's just, if you actually care about the issues, it is objectively true that Bernie Sanders is a mile and a half better than status quo establishment Joe Biden. He is the status quo. He is the establishment. He represents the old guard that you said brought about all these problems. So listen, for everybody, for everybody who's in the Yang gang, I feel for you. I do. Because you know, you invest so much time and energy and support into somebody, and then they do something like this, and you're like, what? <laughs> what? So, you know, listen, it's all about – my advice to everybody moving forward is that a lot of the times criticism is just – it's genuine. It's legitimate. And so when people went after Andrew Yang – and they had specific concerns about policies he was pushing for or strategies he was implementing. It's not, don't, it's not, you don't have to always be defensive because there is such a thing out there as nuance, as, you know, hey, I generally like him, but here's where he's wrong, and, you know, I don't like these things. And 
generally have the philosophy, there are no heroes. There are no heroes. And, you know, I, I've seen it recently, too, with my guys, Bernie Sanders, and I think his strategy post-Super Tuesday, when we had that, you know, earth-shifting event where the race totally changed and it went from a fractured field to one-on-one, I think his strategy since that day has been bad. It's just been bad. Am I going to come out here and be like, no, his strategy was perfect because I like Bernie, so therefore everything he does is right. That would be stupid if I did that. I'd be, I'd be a dumb person if I did that. <laughs> so by the same token, whenever somebody criticizes your guy, understand a lot of the times it comes from a good place. That's not to say it's always genuine and legit. Sometimes criticisms are dumb, but you know, in many instances, some of the criticisms of, uh, of Yang were spot on. And what he just did here is really destroyed his credibility in the eyes of many people who used to support him. And honestly, in all seriousness, in my eyes, because I liked Andrew Yang, if I was making... If, I had, if we had ranked choice voting in this election, my order would have been Bernie number one, Tulsi number two, Yang number three, and Warren number four. So he, he was in the top tier of candidates, despite my disagreements with him. But after seeing this, in the same way that like Warren is dead to me because of everything she's done, where she's like, put her middle finger up to the progressive movement as she frickin' tells news outlets, like, the emojis that Bernie supporters sent to me really killed me. Like, okay, you're dead to me. You, don't, you never really cared about the issues like I thought you did. By the same token, endorsing Joe Biden is one of those moments, too. You just didn't really care about the issues like I thought you did. And that's a damn shame. Okay, now we're going to talk about Medicare for All, because I have more news on Medicare for All. Medicare for All is continuing its undefeated streak. So I showed you guys the polls recently, but let's run through them again. These are the new ones included. Support in Washington, 63%. Opposed, 30%. Mississippi support, 60%. Opposed, 35%. Missouri support, 58%. Opposed, 37%. Michigan, 58%. Opposed, 38%. Um, Now, these are the ones from the last time that we already went through, but again, I'll do it. Um, support in Vermont, 73%. Support in Maine, 69%. Texas, 63%. Minnesota, 62%. Colorado, 57%. California, 57%. North Carolina, 55%. Oklahoma, 53%. Tennessee, 52%. Alabama, 51%. Virginia, 52%. Massachusetts, 50%. Um, So it's above water in every single state. And... This is good news, but it's also depressing, and I think you all know why it's depressing. It's depressing because even though this is the case, Bernie is down in the race. That rhymed. I wasn't even trying to rhyme. Um, So there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between policy and voting patterns. And it just so happens to be the case that voters, particularly older voters, are saying, all that matters to me is electability, and I think Joe Biden is more electable. Now, why do they believe that? Well, very simply, the media. I'm sorry, but in this instance, the media is the root of all evil. Because they've nonstop, relentlessly pushed the narrative, Bernie Sanders pie in the sky, Bernie Sanders unelectable, Bernie Sanders not serious, Bernie Sanders too far left, Bernie Sanders scary socialist. Nonstop they did that. They pumped up Joe Biden. Oh, you know, Joe Biden, he was the vice president of Barack Obama. He's a serious candidate. He was the front runner for so long. Oh, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden, Joe Biden. 
So as a result of that, there's been this tsunami of propaganda that has brainwashed particularly older folks into believing, even though I disagree with Joe on the issues, I'm going to vote for him because I care so much about beating Trump. And here we are. So now not only do you and I have to make the case that Bernie Sanders is more electable because he is, but also we have the long-term case to make now that to let everybody know, hey, dog, it's okay. Vote for the person who has the best ideas. Vote for the person who has the best policies. Vote for the person who you agree with the most. Because this like meta game that people play, like, I'm not going to vote based on who I think is the best. I'm going to vote based off of who I perceive that may or may not may be the strongest against the person who I dislike the most. Who, so I'm going to try to think what other people are thinking and then vote like that because I care more about being the bad person than I do about anything serious and fixing problems. God damn it, that's so stupid. Oh, my God. Again, go talk to a young person. Go talk to a viewer of this show. What are you guys going to say if somebody asks you this? Like, hey, what are you, what are you, what's your criteria in voting? You're going to be like, I care about Medicare for all. I care about free college. I care about a living wage. I care about a Green New Deal. I care about getting money out of politics. I care about legalizing marijuana. I care. You're going you're gonna to go, hey, here's the change I want to see. Let's do that. You go talk to an older voter. They're just like, I think Trump is bad, and so we got to get him out. We ran the test in 2016. Your safe, centrist candidate, Hillary, lost. Joe Biden will lose bar an extenuating circumstance like a total economic crash or a global pandemic. Luckily for Joe, that's exactly what's happening as I'm talking to you right now. But who knows what the case will be by the time the actual election ro- rolls around. So um, it's crazy to me that we actually have to make the case that you should vote for who the best candidate is. <laughs> God damn it. We live in such a terrible, terrible, messed up world. Like, oftentimes, guys, I'm not going to lie to you, I come out here and I do this show, and I think, man, a lot of the things I'm saying are just common sense. So the fact that people want to tune in to hear me say things that are super basic and obvious, like, I don't know why they want to tune in to hear me say these things. It kind of, I'm kind of baffled by it. I'm like, wait, well, I'm just saying basic stuff. No! Wrong, Kyle! Because apparently people don't even agree that in an election, you should vote for the better candidate that you agree with more. (laughs) What? What? I'm sorry, man. Now, all the older voters who watch this show, you guys already vote based on substance, but, like, it's The Walking Dead. Like, it's, it's a zombie movie. Like, you look around, and a lot of the older voters, literally 65 and over, is the demographic that's given Joe Biden all these wins. They're literally just like, yeah, you know, I agree with Medicare for all, but I'm against the person who I agree with on more stuff. What? Stop it. Just stop it. Stop it. There's a, there really is a fundamental generational divide in this country that's serious. As much as there's a class divide, and there is, there's also a hardcore generational divide. And we just see the world differently. And by the way, the Gen Xers are more with the millennials than they are with the boomers and the silent generations. That was an interesting fact that we got from from these most recent exit polls, is that Bernie Sanders is is winning not just 30 and under, 44 and under, Bernie's crushing. So it's once you get over that, once you get to the boomer territory and the silent generation, they are just, I think some of them also have been 
really propagandized from when they were younger with Cold War stuff. And so they really think that, like, you know, the dirty word socialism is like, no, Bernie Sanders literally represents an existential threat to our system, and he will bring us, like, misery. I think that there's a hint of that in there as well. But then that's also contradictory with the idea of, hey, I support Medicare for all, and many of them do. So it's just uh, so much propaganda, so much misleading stuff out there. And it's gotten to the point where many voters literally are, literally say, I don't, even though I agree with him more, why would I vote for Bernie? Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, we got a lot of work to do, guys. And this election is hurting me in the sense that it's really exposing how powerful cable news still is. And that's depressing. Because here I am thinking we're winning, we're winning the battle and the war against cable news. No, they still have more sway in the country. I think we have more sway among young people. New media has more sway among young people. But for the old, older you get, the more they're totally plugged into cable news. And it is more influential because they reach more people than we do. But, but the thing I can hang my hat on with pride is that, yes, those, the numbers of like, and I'm not kidding about this, over 80% of young people go in for Barney over Biden. I do think new media has something to do with that. Uh, and it shows you, I don't think the margins would have been that crushing had it not been for new media. And I'm not just saying me, I'm saying many others um, in the space that I'm in. So, but we got a lot of work to do and I need to do some sort of like older outreach thing because I want more older people to watch this and to kind of shift their worldview a little bit because the whole electability canard needs to die. Again, I think Bernie is more electable, but even given that, I don't think you should vote based on who's more electable. You should vote based on who has the best policies to fix the country. Okay, now I'm going to go back to the issue of the coronavirus here for a second. Oh, wait, am I or am I not? Hold on. Let me see what we got going on here. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm going gonna, gonna to go back to the issue of the coronavirus for a second. And we are going to talk about how conservative pundits have lost their freaking minds. So the coronavirus is um, bad. <laughs> I don't know the right word. It's bad. It's bad. Um, Trump did a, an emergency address from the Oval Office. You're seeing all types of unprecedented actions taken. The NBA suspending their season. Um, I just heard, I think the NCAA now is going to do it. Originally they said no fans. Now they're going to suspend uh, March Madness as well. Um, Donald Trump approved emergency measures. He originally said, hey, we're going to cover treatment for coronavirus, but then it they changed that because the insurance company said no, and they changed it to just the testing, just the testing. You know, if, you test, if, if you're getting the test and you don't have it, cool, we're not going to charge anything. But if you get the test and you do have it, sorry, it might cost you a couple thousand dollars. Yeah, very good thing to do in the middle of a pandemic, scare people away from actually going to get treatment. Um, and by the way, no paid sick leave in this country either, so people are going to go to work and they're going to spread it, and, you know, it's going to be a mess. We're going to be like Italy more than we're going to be like a country that handled it well like, ta- like Taiwan. I just heard the PGA Tour is uh, banning all fans from their events. Um, Tom Hanks has it. <laughs> that one doesn't really fit with the others, but still. It's like, I think a lot of people, it became real as hell. They're like, what? Tom Hanks has it. 
because it's just spreading. It's spreading so fast. You got now multiple players on the Jazz have it, which means that whoever the Jazz played in the past four days, and there are many teams they played, probably somebody on the other team has it. Bad. Not good, not good, not good. Um, so the ground has shifted on this issue, though, because the day before Trump said, okay, no, seriously, this is bad. Ban travel to Europe? What? Again, unprecedented. Conservative pundits were out there downplaying the coronavirus. <laughs> oh, wait, Trump literally just did an emergency address and said, okay, this is serious. But the day before, the conservative pundits thought they had their marching orders, and their marching orders were based on a Trump tweet from the day before, where Trump was like, listen, bro, you know, there are more people that die from the regular flu than the coronavirus. Like, what's the big deal, bro? Like, his, he did a tweet that was something to that effect. And so the conservative pundits were like, got it. You know, I'm going to go with that line. I'm going to go with the line that this is nothing, bro. bro. This is nothing, dog. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then, of course, this misinforms people, and this makes them more likely to get the virus because they're not going to take the precautions. They're going to go out. They're going to be in crowded places, so on and so forth. So um, here's Rush Limbaugh, and then you also have a host from either, I think, Fox Business, maybe CNBC, who does an insane diatribe. Take a look. Interesting. My, my point here is, this is political, folks. Everything has become political in our life today. This is not. They want you to think this is a health issue, and of course part of it is, but it's been politicized. As I said, when this whole thing began, the coronavirus has been weaponized by the media and by opponents of Donald Trump as the latest weapon they might be able to use to get rid of him or to damage his political standing or what have you. Force of hate being leveled at the president is nearing the crescendo as Democrats blame him and only him for a virus that originated halfway around the world. This is yet another attempt to impeach the president. And sadly, it seems they care very little for any of the destruction they are leaving in their wake. Losses in the stock market all this, unfortunately, just part of the political casualties for them. You know, this is the time to be united, not to be pointing fingers, not to be encouraging hate, and yet what do we see? We see the absolute opposite from the left tonight. Good evening, everyone. I am Trish Riggin. The hate is boiling over, many in the liberal media using, and I mean using, coronavirus in an attempt to demonize and destroy the president. This is impeachment all over again. And like with the Mueller investigation, like with Ukraine Gate, they don't care who they hurt. Whether it be their need to create mass hysteria to encourage a market sell-off, unlike anything we've seen recently, or whether it be to create mass hysteria in order to stop our economy dead in its tracks, don't kid yourself. They told us how much they crave a recession as a way to get rid of Donald Trump. Okay, not everything is political. Not everything is political. This virus started in Wuhan, China, and then it spread, and it spread around the world. So how is this, if this is a plot to just get Donald Trump, why is it that Northern Italy is being obliterated right now? Why is it that South Korea has cases? Why is it that, uh, you know, it's spread throughout Europe. The U.K. has a bunch of cases. 
Washington State has been dealing with this for quite a bit. Like, you do realize that the Democratic Party, they are literally just as big of sellouts to big business as the Republican Party is. You think the Democratic Party wants, you know, the airline industry to go bankrupt? You think they want the world economy to grind to a halt? You think they want the stock market to plummet so bad that we had to do an emergency stop of all trading two times this week? Is that what Democrats want? I got news for you. Nancy Pelosi's got a giant portfolio, okay? Nancy Pelosi's going to lose a lot of money as a result of that market crash. These people obviously want to keep the status quo going, obviously want to keep everything working for their donors. The idea is, I got it. Let's have a global pandemic. Let's make a bigger deal out of it than it is, and let's crash the marketplace just to own Trump. No, not at all. Come on, man. I mean, these people are so, they're such partisan hacks. Do you look at any issue objectively, or is everything through the lens of like, Republican good, Democrat bad? That really is the sense I get from them. It's all Republican good, Democrat bad. It's just embarrassing. Come on, just stop it. I feel like I'm lecturing a child. Just stop it. So Rush Limbaugh was doing quite a bit of propaganda for the past few days as well. Uh, he, he was saying that this is literally nothing except just the flu. It's not true. Oh, my God. Uh, again, I'm going to recommend, if I could find the sheet, I'll recommend exactly where you guys go to get the best information on this that I've seen so far. Um, so there's a guy... Where is it? There's a guy by the name of Michael Osterholm. He's a public health scientist, biosecurity and infectious disease expert, director for Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He worked in the Minnesota Health Department from 1975 to 1999. He's on the National Science Advisory Board. Um, He was on Joe Rogan's podcast, and they go into a lot of detail. He debunks all the myths. He tells you the things that are true. So I highly recommend watching that. But according to him, This is 10 to 30 times worse than the flu. So this isn't as bad as the Spanish flu, but it's also significantly worse than the regular flu. He says that the death rate from the flu is about point, I think he said 0.01% or maybe 0.1%. It was one or the other. And he says the death rate from this is like 3 to 6%. So this is not, this is bad. This is not good. (laughs) And I love that. I have, to, I have to come out here and say, hey, guys, a global pandemic's a bad thing because Republicans have taken the position. You say pandemic. I say you're just trying to own Trump. That's what I No, it's a listen. It is true. The reaction from Trump has been bad in the sense that the CDC was cut. Health and Human Services was cut. Pandemic experts were laid off in 2018. We have a shortage of the kits here to test. Um, you know, we're, we're behind what we have to do. It, even in Wuhan, China, when word came out like, okay, it's a pandemic, the government immediately leapt into action and they said, everything's shut down. Shut everything down. Everything's, everything stays in place, quarantined, and they're serious about it. They enforce it. Um, again, Taiwan and Singapore have had the best response because uh, they've dealt with similar outbreaks in the past. Here in the U.S., we're not even close to prepared. Guys, the supply chain that we need to get these, the medicine and the, and the protective gear, it all goes back to China. And China has said, 
oh, interesting. So you want to keep getting these, this protective gear and these ventilators. We have a shortage of ventilators, too. Uh, well, it, why did you guys ban Huawei, our, um, our cell phone company, from having access to the U.S. market? Hmm. We'll take a look at those supply lines. We'll take a look at the things that you need, and maybe, maybe we'll help. But, uh, you know, maybe think about that Huawei thing a little bit. And people know that nobody's steering the ship. Because when Trump gave that emergency Oval Office address, stocks plummeted. And then when that was the futures market, because he did it last night. And then today, as soon as it opened up, down. They had to halt trading. Jim Cramer said on his show, we need emergency, you know, we need basically an emergency bailout already. And within minutes, the White House or an advisor had called him. I guarantee you they will do more to prop up industries than they will to help the people. So namely, what we really need is um, universal paid sick leave, emergency paid sick leave, Medicare for all, not just the, the tests covered, but the treatment covered. Um, and they will not go anywhere near as far as they have to. But what's interesting is that among actual human beings now, like Ben Shapiro tweeted, <laughs> he was like, so when are these uh, you know, testing kits going to be widely available? Oh, interesting. So now all of a sudden you're a socialist. As soon as there's a crisis, oh, my God, we need a better reaction to this. If only we had a very you know, high-functioning government that was fully funded. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's the point. So anyway, um, it's hilarious to see the conservative propaganda before Trump had to come out and admit like, okay, yeah, this is bad, and here's what we're going to have to do. Like, I wonder how Rush Limbaugh is going to now cover his tracks today. How's he going to cover his tracks now? Like, what are you going to say? You were just saying it's not a big deal. Then the president comes out and goes, actually, it's a big deal. What are you going to do now? Don't, you know, be a lemming. Don't be a partisan hack. Try to evaluate stuff based on the evidence. This stuff is obvious, but unfortunately, I have to say it. Okay, now we're going to talk about the quantitative study that was done of Bernie coverage and Joe Biden coverage. Here we go. In these times, did a quantitative media analysis on the coverage of Bernie Sanders versus Joe Biden um, during the primary. And the results are not going to surprise you, but they are going to disgust you. So they say Joe Biden's ascent into front-runner status is often portrayed as an organic consequence of big-time endorsements and an untapped desire for a more centrist and electable candidate. But a survey by In These Times finds that CNN has portrayed Bernie Sanders more negatively than Biden, suggesting that media slant itself may play a role in Biden's rise. In the 24 hours following his massive win in Nevada, Sanders received 3.26 times the proportion of negative CNN coverage than Biden did following the latter's South Carolina win, despite the two wins being by similar margins. Sanders received more coverage after his win than Biden did after his 419 mentions to Biden's 249, but a larger share of Sanders mentions were negative and fewer positive than Biden's. 
The above 3.26 figure was arrived at by comparing negative coverage as a proportion of total coverage for both candidates. So they go on to give um, you know, more detailed numbers there. And they also go on to say that this, this analysis excluded the fawning positive coverage that Joe Biden got when he got Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete and Beto O'Rourke to endorse him and do that rally. And, and by the way, that's where the bulk of the positive coverage came from. But they say, no, we're literally just talking about after the wins. So after the Nevada win, the, the split of positive to negative coverage for Bernie was about 50-50. Imagine that. You win a primary in, in a landslide, and they're like, yeah, let's talk about the bad as well as the good. With Biden, it was just wall-to-wall, positive, positive, positive. So this is, I mean, again, you're not surprised by this, but to see it broken down in a quantitative analysis is, um, is eye-opening. It's eye-opening. And remember, this is just CNN. This is just after the primary wins. Um, and this doesn't include MSNBC. This doesn't include um, the fawning coverage after the endorsements. So my guess is the picture is a lot worse. And Bernie Sanders and his supporters were compared to the coronavirus. They were compared to the brown shirts, the Nazis repeatedly. And this is this is the picture that was painted, particularly for the older demographic who watches cable news. Um, they've been told all along that Bernie Sanders is unelectable and Bernie Sanders is pie in the sky and too far left. Guys, every single debate had the question about how are you going to pay for it when we're talking about basic social democratic policies, things that other developed nations have easily been able to accomplish. They scream, how are we going to pay for it? But again, you guys know this for war and for Wall Street bailouts and things of that nature. They never say it, ever. It's just, it's a given. What do you mean? It's a moral necessity. Of course we're going to do it. Why is that a moral necessity? But, you know, healthcare to make sure people don't die, that's not a moral necessity. Healthcare to make sure 500,000 people don't go bankrupt for medical bills, that's not a moral necessity. So um, this doesn't even give you the total scope of the biased coverage, but it is, you know, a little look into it. And... Again, I told you guys this already, but it makes me sad because we, new media, weren't able to do enough to overcome the narrative. Uh, Cable news still sets the national narrative. They do. They're bigger than us. Granted, it's more with the older population than the younger population. But they still set the narrative, and we only respond to it. You know, I'm not the one who's setting the narrative. They're setting it, and I'm responding to it and doing my best to beat back all the propaganda. But that's effectively what it was. It's a tsunami of propaganda. It's a giant wave of propaganda that Joe Biden has been riding to this point here. Because you guys know, listen, he was dead in the water after Nevada. He was done. He came third, fourth in Iowa, New Hampshire, and then uh, Nevada, he came in second, but a very distant second. He was done. He was done. It was Bloody Monday where Mayor Pete and Amy Klobuchar endorsed him, and then, you know, that started the snowball effect of nonstop positive coverage, which led to giant bumps in the polls, which led to him running away. So the media is biased against Bernie Sanders. The media is biased against the left. And this is something that, um, you know, Republicans have been screaming about a biased media for a long time, and they're right. But the bias of the media is not just a a, a Democratic bias or a left-wing bias. The bias of the media is an establishment Democratic bias. 
a corporate Democratic bias. That's CNN. That's MSNBC. So they hate the left probably even more than they hate Trump. They really do. Because Trump, you know, he puts on a show, and they cover the show all the time. Um, one of the tricks that they used for most of the primary with Bernie is they just ignored him. They just ignored him. They ignored him as long as they possibly could. And I always said that that was actually a pretty good strategy because it allows them to not, it allows them to make it so that people remain largely uneducated about the guy. In the case of Trump, they couldn't resist the show. Um, and oftentimes the negative coverage of Trump ended up helping him. But in the case of Bernie, for the longest time, it was ignore, 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 ignore. And then when they finally cover him, you know, it's with a million asterisks and caveats about how pie in the sky he is and unelectable he is and socialist he is. And, and that's what older voters ended up voting on, too. We saw the exit poll data. They are absolutely voting on electability, and they have been convinced by propaganda that Joe Biden is more electable than Bernie Sanders, even though that's definitely not true. We saw what happened in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. We saw what happened in 2004 with John Kerry against George W. Bush. The safe choice is actually not the safe choice. The actual safe choice is Bernie Sanders. But the propaganda has definitely, um, you know, overrode it. And outlets like mine just aren't big enough yet to compete in that game and to really change the narrative and, and swing elections like cable news really has done. I mean, if you, if you want to place the blame anywhere other than Bernie's strategy, which I do think a lot of that is to blame, to be fair, but if you want to place the blame anywhere else, Barack Obama making those phone calls, Amy Klobuchar, Mayor Pete, Beto O'Rourke, pushing Biden, contributing to that giant momentum, and then the media is probably the biggest culprit. That's why we are where we are. Because I'll tell you, Bernie Sanders had that race before they unfractured the fractured field. And that's led to where we are now. I'm going to take a quick break, guys. And then when I come back, I got a lot more. Stay right there.
I'm back, y'all. I am back. Let's, uh... Let's move right along. Let's move right along. Where were we? All right, the Republicans have become more popular than the Democrats. This is uh this is not a very good development, but can't say it wasn't predictable because I did exactly that. I predicted it. Okay. Unfortunately, the chickens have come home to roost as a result of the Democrats' impeachment failure. A new Gallup poll finds congressional Republicans with a higher approval rating than Democrats in the wake of President Trump's impeachment and acquittal in the Senate. Republicans get a 40% approval rating compared to 35% for Democrats. The Gallup poll found that since October, shortly after, Democrats launched the impeachment inquiry. The approval rating for Republicans in the Gallup poll has gone up six points from 34% to 40%. Democrats saw their approval rating fall over the same period from 38% to 35%. The disapproval rating in the Gallup poll for Democrats rose from 57% to 62%. The findings are also significant. Since Gallup began polling of lawmakers in 1999, Democrats have tended to have a higher approval rating than Republicans. Oh, my goodness. So this is somewhat unprecedented. Somewhat unprecedented. Now, I will say that with what's going on right now, namely a market crash and a global pandemic, these numbers are definitely subject to change. Because who's ever in power, whoever is in control during a situation like this, uh, is usually going to get blamed, not unfairly. I mean, that's pretty reasonable to blame them. Um, But what we're seeing right here is this is is the fruits of impeachment. And this was something that I warned everybody about. And it was a little bit lonely. There were only a handful of us on the left who were – making the case that impeachment is dumb and counterproductive. But, you know, hey, now that we've been proven correct, at least we'll get a lot of credit, right? (laughs) No way. (laughs) Because guess what? Uh, You know, I was right about the Mueller report. No credit there. Um, I was right about impeachment. No credit there. Every single time, you know, I've gone out on a limb, Russiagate, I've been right, and then there is no, there's no credit. So, uh, you know, but it's really, it's not about the credit. I just want people to learn the lessons moving forward. I want them to understand that anti-Trump shortcuts don't work. The way you beat Trump is with the hard work of focusing on the serious issues where he's terrible and Democrats are supposed to be good. Um, you know, here's, here's just one example, but I could go on. At least 7 million people have lost their health care under the Trump administration. That fact alone, if the Democrats scream that in every interview, that fact would stick, and then people would go, you know, why are people losing health care under this guy? I thought he was going to make America great again. So, you know, it's bread and butter issues. It's the straightforward stuff. It's the stuff that everybody universally agrees are bad things that you focus on. 
But the crazy thing is the Democrats ignore all of those things, and they go right to anti-Trump shortcuts like impeachment over a naughty phone call, and then they lose, and then they're surprised. And then, you know, now we're put in a position where um, the party, largely because of older voters, is trying to counter Trump with a guy that has severe cognitive decline. Thank you very much. You know, young people are probably never going to forgive you for continuing to screw over us and the planet moving forward. So um, this is important because, yet again, it's another lesson. It's a lesson the Democrats will fail to learn. But um, we, we need to adjust and move forward attacking Trump on the right things and us proposing the right things that would help people would definitely greatly improve the Democrats' approval rating. So I fear we're not going to learn anything, and I'm nearly certain we're not going to learn anything, but Democrats still might be the beneficiary of the absolute chaos and mayhem that's happening right now. But at least for this snapshot in time, yet again, I told you so, impeachment backfired in the most spectacular and obvious way imaginable. Okay. So this next story that I'm going to give you is actually very um it's very personal to me. It's very personal to me and you guys all know why already, but I'll talk about it a little bit more. Um <clears throat> Joe Biden yet again putting his middle finger up to people who are supposed to make up the Democratic base. All right, here we go. Joe Biden decided to piss off virtually the entire left and the majority of the Democratic base, he basically said here that he would veto a Medicare for All bill. Another candidate this kind of question, veto question. Let's flash forward. Your president, Bernie Sanders, is still active in the Senate. He manages to get Medicare for All through the Senate in some compromised version, the Elizabeth Warren version or, or other version. Nancy Pelosi gets a version of it through the House of Representatives. It comes to your desk. Do you veto it? I would veto anything that delays providing the security and the certainty of health care being available now. If they got that through and by some miracle, and there was an epiphany that occurred, and some miracle occurred that said, okay, it's passed, then you got to look at the cost. And I want to know, how did they find the $35 trillion? What is that doing? Is it going to significantly raise taxes on the middle class, which it will? What's going to happen? Uh, look, my opposition isn't to the principle that there should be you should have Medicare. I mean, I, everybody, health care should be a right in America. My opposition relates to whether or not, A, it's doable, to what the cost is, and what the consequences for the rest of the budget are. How are you going to find $35 trillion for the next 10 years? 
without having profound impacts on everything from taxes for middle class and working class people, as well as as well as the impact on the rest of the budget. I don't need to tell you guys this because you already know it, but Medicare for all would save money. So all the fear mongering over the cost and how you're going to pay for it. That's absurd because the real question is, how can we afford the status quo? How can we afford to keep doing what we're doing? Medicare for all would save $5.1 trillion over a 10 year period, according to a study from the university of Massachusetts Amherst. And we know this because there's been, there are single payer systems and universal healthcare systems all throughout the developed world. So we know these things. It's not a question. We know that it would save money. So your whole concern about it, what about the cost? What about the price? How are you going to pay for it? 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 useless it's useless it saves money just listen they're not honest they're not honest hey i joe biden oppose medicare for all and one of the main reasons why is i take a lot of money from for-profit health insurance companies i also take a lot of money from big pharma that's why i oppose it i oppose it because of that and i oppose it because of me and everybody i've surrounded myself with has fully drunk the Kool-Aid and bought into the propaganda about this not being, quote, doable. So again, let's review here. We already know, we already know it's going to save money. So the whole concern about cost, gone, forget it, over. You should be concerned about the system now. And we already know it's, quote, doable because every other developed country has done it. So your concerns are bogus. They're bogus. And the reason why this is more egregious, some of you might be watching this going, yeah, I mean, but we knew Joe Biden wasn't for Medicare for all. No, we knew that he's, he wouldn't lead the charge on it. But the hypothetical question was, what if they actually passed it and got it to your desk and your president? Okay, in a situation like that, guys, even many other establishment Democrats would sign it. I think Barack Obama has famously said, hey, if we started from scratch, I'd love to do a single-payer health care system. So in a hypothetical scenario where it gets through, because half, half of their concern is like, it's just not possible to get through, so why would we even try? That's what many of them say. But in this hypothetical, he's granting you that, no, 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 it's going to get through. It's already through, and it's on your desk. What do you do? Even in that situation, you're, no, no, I don't want to do it. Okay, well then... You know, Joe, I don't know what to tell you, man. Don't come asking for my vote. Don't come asking for my vote. My dad would probably be alive if we had Medicare for all. You guys know the story. I've told the story on air before. You know, my dad uh, didn't have health insurance, was feeling back pain, tried to save money by going to the chiropractor. Chiropractor told him, hey, man, keep coming back here. We'll get that kink out, no problem. And then eventually he had to go to the emergency room because the pain kept getting worse and worse. It was a freaking tumor. It was lung cancer that metastasized to his spine, and he died. If he could just, you know, no questions asked, no money, just go to the doctor, maybe they would have caught the cancer in, like, stage two as opposed to stage four, and he would have been able to fight it off, and he would still be alive today. So 
I'm not, listen, I'm not an unreasonable dude. If you, if you, if I get the sense that you genuinely will fight for at least a couple of the priorities I care about, I'll vote for you. I'll vote for you. My litmus test is not that complicated. But when, Joe, when it's every single issue that you're putting your middle finger in my face, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I, and, then other, and then people try to shame you to fall in line to go vote for them. Trump's bad. What about the kids in cages? I guess you don't care about the kids in cages. Joe Biden and Barack Obama also put kids in cages. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. There was a famous photo that went viral about a year ago, and everybody was, oh, my God, Trump's putting kids in cages. Turns out the picture was taken during the Obama administration. They called Obama the deporter-in-chief. He deported three million people. So don't, like, every little thing that they try to manipulate you, you know, with, you dig into it and you find out they're full of it. Again, I'm not unreasonable. But the last election, you gave me the option of Hillary Clinton who was wrong on virtually every major policy in her entire life and did not vote with the left position, and you give me Joe Biden, who's Hillary Clinton plus cognitive decline. What am I supposed to do with that? What are you supposed to do in a situation where every issue you care about, you're convinced that this guy's not going to fight for it at all? I'll tell you what, what you do with that. You do nothing with it. You do nothing with it. you got to come to us. And I'm, listen, I'm talking for myself here, but I know that there are many, many millennials who feel the exact same way. If somebody prioritizes a Green New Deal, he's not for a Green New Deal. Somebody prioritizes free college, he's not for free college. Eliminating student loan debt, he's not for eliminating student loan debt. I can go through the list. Listen, I'll, here, I'll show you the list again. Here we go. Joe Biden supported the Iraq War, NAFTA, permanent normal trade relations with China, Patriot Act, TPP, repealing Glass-Steagall, war on drugs, Wall Street bailout, the Anti-Gay Defense of Marriage Act. He opposes legal marijuana, a wealth tax, Medicare for all, free college, and canceling student debt. And that entire list was just off the top of my head the other night. If I dig deeper, you'll see a lot more uh, negative stuff and a lot less positive stuff, more policies that you and I, our, our eyes would roll in the back of our heads. So, again, I ask you, what the hell am I supposed to do with that? And then I get here, you want... Another guarantee, I guarantee you, whoever he picks for his VP is going to be another middle finger to the left because he's going to make every single same mistake Hillary Clinton did. Imagine a world where Hillary Clinton actually picked Bernie Sanders as his VP, as her VP. Don't take my word for it. Take Trump's word for it. He said, that's the only, that's the only one I didn't want her to pick because I think it would have been much harder for me to win. So Joe Biden, obviously, he's not going to pick Bernie Sanders because, you know, identity politics, old, yada, yada, got it. But who is he going to pick? Nobody that you and I are going to like. It's going to be the same nonsense. He's going to pick Amy Klobuchar, Stacey Abrams. Hey, look, a woman. Ah, uh, left. Ah, uh, you like women. Ah, uh, it's about policy with us. It's about policy. And no amount of shaming is going to get people to fall in line. Bernie Sanders is getting over 80% of the youth vote. You're sleepwalking into destruction, just like you did in 2016 when we warned you, just like I'm doing now, and I guarantee you they're going to turn around and blame people like us, even though I'm telling them up front where they're messing up, how they could fix it, what they need to do. I'm telling them up front, and they're still going to turn around and blame people like us. Guaranteed, they're going to blame people like us. You've got to earn our votes, and you haven't earned our votes. And uh, that's relatively obvious. And so maybe if you want to win an election, 
You don't start by putting your middle finger up to the overwhelming majority of your own frickin' party. Because, again, the exit polls show in every single state, Medicare for All is popular. Every single state, every single state that's voted so far, Medicare for All is popular. And you're telling your own people, no, no, I'm not going to do it. Okay, well, there's 500,000 people who go bankrupt every year for medical bills. They say, you fuck off. There's 45,000 at least that die every year because they don't have health care. They, they tell you to fuck off too. Because you just don't care about them. You don't care about actually fixing problems. This would be, what Joe Biden is doing here is the equivalent if a Republican was running and he said, I'm against tax cuts. Or I'm against the wall. Okay, well then when you lose, you earned it. What is this? You're a politician and your whole spiel is, I'm going to say I'm against everything my base is for. Okay, great. Then don't fucking whine when you lose. Because that's what's going to happen. The only thing saving Joe Biden at the moment is a freaking global pandemic and the stock market crashing. That's the only reason he has any chance in a general election. But that's how bad things are. That's the point we're at. You pick a guy in severe cognitive decline or a reality star idiot. That's where we are. If only there was a better candidate who's still running. Oh, right, there is. So I asked you guys a poll question that I want to share the results of this with you now. It's about the future of the left and how we adjust. So should our candidates, should left-wing candidates, number one, suck up to the media, infiltrate it, and get them to like us or at the very least not hate us, should we, two, build out the counter-infrastructure of new media where it overtakes old media, That's admittedly a much longer project. Or should we, number three, do both of those things or try to do both of those things? So the results here were um, number one was the least popular. It only got 4.7%. And then you had um, number two is 43.1%. So people in much larger numbers want to build out new media more to overtake old media. And then actually the majority position is option number three, both of those things. So let me expand on this a little bit because I know I've had this conversation behind the scenes with some people, and there's a little bit of confusion as to what exactly I mean by that first option, and I want to explain it. So Barack Obama in 2008 got the media to like him. Now, you might say, yeah, but he's Barack Obama. He's a freaking corporate centrist. True, but in 2008 at the time, The media and the people really had no idea how he would actually govern. There was a decent chance that he would get in there and be FDR-like. There really was. With some of his rhetoric, he was hinting in that direction. He never flat out said it because he's big on platitudes and cliches. But at the time, in 2008, there was definitely, you know, a hint of like, hey, maybe maybe he does go FDR-style if he gets elected. And the media still gave him fawning positive coverage. Why? Honestly... Old school charm and hard work. So namely, go out of your way. Shake the hands of the press. Be kind to them. Ask how the kids are doing. You know, Um, show concern. Give them time. If you do something like that, listen, human beings are human beings. And they will be more receptive to you and your message and your campaign simply by you treating them like that. So... 
Now, obviously, we know what ended up happening. Barack Obama got elected, and then in office, he was a very centrist, status quo-y kind of politician. He did some good things, but he also did a lot of bad things. Wall Street bailout, escalating the wars, so on and so forth. We don't need to get into all of it, okay? But point is, the reason I point that out is it is theoretically possible for an actual lefty who believes in it to infiltrate the media and get them to like him even though they're for the same policies as Bernie Sanders. I think that is theoretically possible. Now, there is a question, though, okay, but is that culture, that corporate culture, so toxic that anybody who's in that world ends up becoming a shell of their former self? Like, their positions get watered down, and they don't actually end up fighting for those positions because you're part of that corporate culture. And basically... It's the Noam Chomsky idea that in order for the media to like you, you have to be shitty. Like, they manufacture consent for corporate candidates and corporate candidates alone. And really, in Noam Chomsky's conception of stuff, what I'm describing here isn't even really possible because the second that these people get the hint that you're actually for real change is they'll turn on you. So... I don't know. I really do think that's an open question. I mean, I actually think that there's a practical argument for, yes, you can have somebody who's really charming, who can get the media off their ass, but still advocate for Bernie Sanders' policies. But then the other part of me says, well, it'll never, there will always be some people in that media environment hostile to that kind of a message, simply because to really rise through the ranks in that media environment, you have to be hostile to those ideas. So I don't know, I'm a little torn on it, but I do think it's worth a try. I do think it's worth a try for somebody who we definitely trust who can somehow get the media to not hate them. Left-wing candidates at whatever position you want to talk about, whatever level of government they're running for. Um, Now, the second option, listen, that has always been my position. My position has always been, you know, I'm going to call out the media relentlessly and ruthlessly and take them down and try to build our own thing that's bigger than them. I want to overtake them. I want to override them. I want, but the reality is we got slapped in the face with it this election. I and other new media people, we are simply not big enough to have the narrative control that mainstream media does. We're only responding to the narrative. They are setting the narrative. And so I think I'm a little more pessimistic about how possible it is for new media to totally overtake old media. So, and that's partly why this question arises. Now, in in principle, I want that to be true, and that's what I've always believed, and that's what I always fought for and will continue to fight for. My job as somebody in new media is not only to give you guys facts and information and my perspective, but also to push back against how terrible they are. And that's not going to change. I'm always going to be doing that because that's my role in this thing. But all I'm saying is I don't know how effective that could actually be and if we can actually overtake them at one point or another because they have so much more money and institutional advantages and They have the entire older population stuck on their words. Now, again, we have a lot of young people watching this show, and I'm sure not just this show, but the rest of the new media, that contributed to why Bernie does gets like 80% of the younger demographic. But it still wasn't enough to win an election, sway an election, and have us set the narrative. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, I think I agree with what everybody said. I think I agree that our best option is to try to have some lefty candidates who can like infiltrate the media and get them to not hate them. But we go into it with no illusions that it could easily backfire and they might end up hating us no matter what, for sure. Um, And all I could say is we will keep trying in the lane that we're in, us new media folks, 
to make you guys proud and become that counter infrastructure that's, that's big enough and powerful enough to overtake the narrative of mainstream media. But again, I don't want to have any illusions about that either because I think their institutional advantages make it so we're fighting, we're fighting at a permanent disadvantage. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point that we're bigger than them. But the best thing we could do is spread the word. Spread the word about our show and other left-wing shows. Try to get more people interested, more people involved, and um, namely older people. Because, again, we have the demographics show a lot of younger people watch this, but I would like to kind of get into that older demographic as well because, you know, that could help massively. And people might actually start voting based on who has the best policies and ideas and not people who they think is the most electable or whatever. So, anyway, that, that was just some stuff that was going on in my mind recently. Um, you can rest assured I'll keep doing my part. And my part as a new media figure is to try to expose how terrible old media is and give you guys facts and information in my perspective. All right, let's do one more. So the New York Times had a story about how actually, you know, Warren was, wasn't really likely to endorse Bernie anyway. And, um, yeah, I want to go ahead and read for you some of what's in that. Just a little excerpt here. I got a tweet about it. And I think that this is so telling because it, tell, it shows you who Warren really is. So Alex Koch tweeted, Randy Weingarten says here in a New York Times article that emojis contributed to Warren's likely decision not to endorse Sanders. Quote, there were a lot of really nasty emojis and tweets and other vituperative and misogynistic comments directed towards Elizabeth. So I want you to think about that. Elizabeth Warren, who did not endorse Bernie in 2016, really could have helped change this race. If she dropped out before Super Tuesday, now, by the way, she was guaranteed to get obliterated in every state. The only state she had a chance was her home state of Massachusetts. So really, she could have dropped out before Massachusetts and endorsed Bernie, therefore changing the trajectory of the race massively. And Bernie would have won at least four more states that day, at least four more states. Well, you say, okay, she wanted to stay in for Super Tuesday to see her results. Okay, fine. But after Super Tuesday, drops out, stays out, doesn't endorse Bernie. Now, listen, as many people have pointed out, she doesn't owe Bernie anything. Totally true. She doesn't owe Bernie anything. But also, she doesn't really believe in her policy platform. That's an inescapable conclusion. Why do I say that? Because it is an objective fact that Bernie's policies are way closer to what Warren says she believes in than Joe Biden's. So for her to stay out, okay, fine, Warren, you don't owe Bernie, you don't owe us anything. Granted, you don't owe us anything. But it is simply a fact, a stone-cold, ironclad fact. You do not believe in your platform like you said you did. Because if you did, then it'd be a no-brainer. Yeah, of course I'm going to endorse Bernie. What do you mean? He's closest to me on the issues. Duh. But you didn't do it. You didn't do it in 2016, which very well may have cost Bernie Massachusetts. Um, You didn't do it this time, which very well may have cost Bernie the race. And all I have to say is I feel for every single Warren supporter who actually 
believed in her and supported her because of those plans that she had. I got a plan for it. I, you know, big structural change. For mostly the younger people who backed her, based on that, I genuinely feel for them. Because while Elizabeth Warren doesn't owe Bernie anything and doesn't owe me as a Bernie supporter anything, she doesn't. She genuinely doesn't. I think she owed it to her supporters who actually believed in her policy platform to endorse Bernie. That's what I think. And the fact that to her, according to her and her team, well, the emojis were so mean, so what was she supposed to do? Oh, okay. Okay. So meanness on social media overrides the importance of the 45,000 people who die every year because they don't have basic health care. Biden's plan leaves 10 million people uncovered. We know that. 500,000 medical bankruptcies every year. Elizabeth Warren says, sorry, there were some snake emojis tweeted at me. 78% of people living paycheck to paycheck. Sorry. I know Bernie's for stronger unions. Bernie's for a living wage. Bernie is guaranteed to fight for these things. What am I going to do? At BernieBro6969 on Twitter was really rude. Even to the extent that she actually believes in her wealth tax. Bernie proposed a wealth tax that's even more aggressive. Biden's not going to do a wealth tax. Sorry. Twitter people were mean to me. So, listen, I say that to say this. She's not, she's not real. She's not the real deal. That Her actions show me that. Her actions are what matters. That's all that matters in this world when it comes to politics. Policy, record, actions. That says everything. Imagine caring. I wouldn't. I wouldn't care if every single Bernie supporter in the world called me a giant piece of shit and spit in my face. He objectively has the best policies, so I'm going to support him. Because that's, that's what a serious person does. It just is. Now, I'll end on this note here. This one is upsetting. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez weighed in on this, and here's what she said to the New York Times. Quote, I always want to see us come together as a progressive wing, Ms. Ocasio-Cortez said. I think that it's important and where we draw strength from. But at the same time, I come from the lens of an organizer, and if someone doesn't do what you want, you don't blame them. You ask why, and you don't demand that answer of that person. You reflect, and that reflection is where you can grow. One of the biggest problems with the left is many well-meaning people are incapable of just calling bullshit on something. And listen, we saw this from AOC as well when Ilhan Omar was being thrown under the bus. There was a coordinated smear campaign against Ilhan Omar where everybody was screaming from the rooftops and all of corporate media and corporate Democrats were saying, anti-Semite. Why? Because she dared to say that APAC money controls politicians and makes them want to do the bidding of Israel. That is, not only is that not anti-Semitic, That's not even controversial, if you're being honest. In the same way that the Saudi lobby controls politicians and gets them to do things that are pro-Saudi Arabia, like weapons deals and aiding a genocide in Yemen, Israeli money does the same thing. AIPAC money does the exact same thing. Absolutely. In the same way, big pharma money, Wall Street money, military-industrial complex money. Why is it not controversial to say, oh, all those impact our politicians? and why we have a giant bloated military budget, and why we do Wall Street bailouts. But the one group you can't say it about, oh my God, you said it about APAC. Oh my God, you said Israeli money also controls politicians. Anti-Semite. That is so immensely dishonest. 
that you have to be able to see through it. But what happened? All it took was a couple people on Twitter, you know, with their fake sincerity saying, oh, as a Jewish person, what she said is really hurtful. And I'm sorry, but this, this, I deserve an apology. Ilhan Omar shouldn't have said it. And AOC ran right out there and said, oh, yes, we need to be very, we need to make sure that we understand people's lived experience and that, you know, we don't say things that hurt their feelings. Or Sometimes some things are just bullshit. And if we're not going to fight for our side and we're not going to fight for that which is true, what the hell's the point? So listen, the one area where I will agree, Elizabeth Warren is right. She doesn't know Bernie anything. She doesn't know the movement anything. But this does mean that she does not believe in the platform that she said she believed in. Because if it was all about that platform, there's no decision here. You endorse him guaranteed. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, no, 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 I seriously mean I care so deeply. Oh, my, I'm all about the plans. I'm all about the policies. And I didn't endorse Bernie. No, that, that makes no sense. That makes no sense. So I need you to understand that. You can't have it both ways. So really, when all said and done, the fact that she's, I care so deeply about these policies and the guy who's going to continue fighting for them, I'm not going to endorse him. Okay, then you're a fraud. I don't know what you want me to tell you. It is what it is. I don't know what you want me to tell you. So sometimes you got to call bullshit. And the, the final point, final, final point, I know I said that a million times, is imagine being Bernie Sanders. Bernie went out of his way to never say a negative word about Elizabeth Warren throughout this entire campaign. He went out of his way to do it, out of his way. He even went as far as, yes, oh, my God, anybody who supports me on social media who's being rude, who's being mean, I don't want you as part of our campaign. I condemn it. She still said no. So you know what that means? She was never going to endorse him. The whole thing about the emojis is just a cover story. She was never going to endorse him. That's the thing that she's, you know, hanging her hat on. And if Bernie had said any negative word about her, she would have said, I can't believe Bernie said that. That's why I'm not endorsing him. She was never going to do it. When the pressure's on and it's a moment where the real deal people need to step up, Elizabeth Warren is routinely nowhere to be found. And it behooves you, if you're on the left, to acknowledge that. So for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for anybody who is a supporter of Elizabeth Warren, let's get real here. The left will never win with this kind of mindset, ever, ever. We got to get serious about power. We got to get serious about winning. And part of that is calling BS where indeed there is BS. All right. I am done. I love you guys. Don't get the coronavirus. I'll talk to you soon. I'm out. Peace.